you have your Bibles tonight, you can turn to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. As we, just to kind of catch us back up as quickly as I can from last week, um, as we come into chapter 11, and it's two scenes in the parentheses between the sixth and seventh trumpets, John is first given this measuring rod and commanded to measure the temple in verses 1 and 2. To be measured, we learn, means God's protection, just as being sealed did back in chapter 7. To be outside these measurements is for the purpose of being trampled by God's enemies in the advance of the gospel, the church of Jesus Christ is sealed and measured and therefore spiritually indestructible. Our souls in this world while on this mission, but also physically vulnerable to suffering at the hands of those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. John then hears a voice from heaven giving an overview, if you will, which is what we'll look at tonight of the prophetic career of those the voice calls my two witnesses in verses 3 to 13. If we're remembering correctly, or if we can, this section corresponds directly to the vision of the 144,000, <clears> excuse me, and this great multi-ethnic global multitude in Revelation 7 in its placement, right, between the 6th and 7th in a series, its theme, the protection of the church in suffering, and its dual structure of two visions, verses 1 and 2 and verses 3 to 13. In this second vision tonight, those latter verses, the picture of God's protective care over His church is described with even more intricacy, more depth here in Revelation 11. The measuring of the sanctuary in verse 1 and the invincibility of the two witnesses in verse 5, after their testifying work is finished, reaffirm and reiterate the promise of chapter 7, that nothing will be allowed to separate God's people from His love for them. But in this vision, when John is prohibited from measuring the outer court, leaving it vulnerable to being trampled by the Gentiles, and the two witnesses are then killed by the beast in verse 7, we're being reminded that God does not promise to spare us from all suffering, but that He is going to hold us fast in suffering. The church is a twofold witness in the world until the return of Jesus by declaring God's truth and by suffering for its sake. So let me pray and we'll walk through this together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this time that we've been given to stand under it and to hear it. And so, Lord, I ask that you would help us all to hear Help us all to grasp the truth that you've breathed into this text. And Father, I ask you to overshadow me and be with me so that I might clearly proclaim it. And Father, I pray that we would be moved by the promise that never fails as we read through these things that describe our current world and the world to come. We ask and pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me read verses 3 through 13 of chapter 11. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. 
If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. It's a very interesting line. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. In the book of Revelation, as in the rest of the New Testament, Christians are called very clearly Jesus' witnesses. The word is literally, though we don't translate it this way, martyrs. In chapter 2, verse 13, in Revelation in chapter 17, 6, and here, of course, in 11. Beloved, let me ask you a question. If that's the label for us, martyr, for all that we are, that our Lord inspired to be written to describe us, why would we ever think we weren't going to suffer persecution and even death for our witness? Why would we think that? It's in the name. How could we come up with a whole view of the end times that would bypass the label God has given to us? We are called his martyrs. We are entrusted with the testimony, literally the martyria of Jesus in 1 2, in 1 9, in 12 17, in 19 10, in 20 verse 4. For Jesus himself is the faithful witness. That's how he's introduced to us in Revelation 1 5. These two witnesses tonight are prophets who bring a message of impending judgment and a call to repentance. That's being shown by the fact that they wear sackcloth, as we've seen. In Scripture, Isaiah 37, 1 through 2, Jonah 3, 5, Matthew 11, 21. The text portrays them as having the power to inflict miraculous signs of judgment after the pattern of Moses. And some even see these two witnesses as Moses and Elijah. Maybe there are literally, well, let's just say a lot of uh, guesses of who these two witnesses are. But... After the pattern of Moses, the water turning to blood, the other plagues in Exodus chapter 7 verse 9, and after the pattern of Elijah or his ministry, shutting up the sky, causing drought in 1 Kings 17.1, destroying threatening enemies, of course, by fire in 2 Kings 1.10-12, there are two of them for two reasons. First of all, they satisfy the required quorum needed to establish reliable evidence in matters of biblical Legal regulations, Deuteronomy 19.15, on the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. That truth continuing to be true is reaffirmed in Matthew 18.16, 1 Timothy 5.19. Secondly, notice that they're portrayed in the imagery of Zechariah's vision 
in Zechariah 4 of the lampstand supplied with oil by two olive trees in the sanctuary of God. And then once again, as though the book of Revelation, uh, of Revelation is written to fully explain and interpret the ancient prophets, and I believe it is, I believe that's how we should be reading it, Zechariah's vision that he had is modified, so all the images are there, but it's modified as its symbolic vocabulary is changed in the Revelation to John. Zechariah's one lampstand has become two in Revelation 11.4. To Zechariah, the two olive trees are interpreted as two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth in Zechariah 4.14. The context there suggests they represent Zerubbabel, the royal figure who was to rebuild God's temple in Zechariah 4, 6 through 10, and Joshua, not the Joshua the book of the Bible is named after, but Joshua the priest who is to lead worship in that temple in Zechariah 3, 1 through 5. Both, therefore, Zerubbabel and Joshua prefigure the coming servant of God, the branch who will unite the royal and priestly offices by building the temple, offering the atoning sacrifice, and ruling on his throne. Zechariah 3, 8 through 10, and Zechariah 6, 12 and 13. So, beloved, these two witnesses here in Revelation 11 are explicitly presented as prophets, yes, but also in this imagery as kings and priests in the allusion to Zechariah's two olive trees. At this point in Revelation, also, beloved, We have already seen the church portrayed as priests who reign in Revelation 5.10. Jesus portrayed the church as lampstands back in chapters 2 and 3 in the letters to the seven churches. And we would say, but there are only two here. There were seven there. All through the Old Testament, two witnesses verified truth. Um, In Luke 10.1, Jesus sends out his disciples or his witnesses two by two, right? Or in twos. I believe these two witnesses represent the whole church in its witnesses or as witnesses. We start over. I believe these two witnesses represent the whole church in its role as witnesses to God's truth and against the world's lies and wickedness and as martyrs for that witness, a twofold witness. Another reason I believe these two witnesses represent the whole church is that verse 7 here will use the exact same words to describe the church that are used to do so later in Revelation 13, 7, telling us, signaling to us that the same protagonists are in view here. Here in verse 7, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. That points us to 13, 7, and 13, 7 points us back here. It was given to the beast that came out of the sea in 13.1 to make war with the saints and to overcome them. So did you hear what in both of those texts, here in 11.7 and in 13.7, the beast makes war with the faithful followers of God and overcomes them. And notice that in both of these contexts, chapters 11 and 13, At the same time, people from the world's peoples and tribes and languages and nations support the beast in his aggression against the witnesses of God. 11.9 and again 13.7. But the beast's victory here isn't an eternal one. It isn't a binding one since God vindicates his witnesses. 
So the only way the beast can conquer them is by killing them, ending their physical lives and silencing their testimony. But the triumph of the beast is very brief. So the victims of the beast's violence are identified with each other as the two witnesses in 11.7 are the saints in 13.7. But Tony, look at the amazing signs and miracles the two witnesses are doing here. How can you say the church does or can do those things? Beloved, do you remember James chapter 5, verses 17 and 18? Do you remember that text where James says something very mind-blowing that we just kind of brush right over? When he's talking about praying for those who are sick in the church and having the elders anoint them with oil and pray for them. And he says that Elijah, he brings up the example, he says, don't you remember, you know, Elijah was a, a man with a nature like ours. He was just another guy and he prayed. And as a result, for three and a half years, it didn't rain. He says, you are like Elijah. That's what he's telling them. You can do what Elijah did in his prophetic ministry. Revelation 11 is testifying to the power of prayer under the reign of Jesus Christ in these amazing signs as much as you desire or as they desire to. Right? They're capable of such things in some sense. Back in Revelation 8, if you remember, if you think of that text, what it's saying here, you think of James 5. Now think of Revelation 8, where the prayers of the saints, us praying right now, were ascending into heaven. They're gathered together and attended to and noticed by God. And they're put in bowls, our prayers. As you prayed today, it all rose up. The Father puts them in bowls. Many believe the prayer of God's people for God's truth to be manifest. And for the sake of the gospel, his judgments to be poured out is in response to the intercessory prayer of God's people. Remember 10 verse 11. Maybe these torments here in chapter 11 are the seal and trumpet judgments being poured out as we pray. Miraculous things from heaven. The plagues evoke memories of Moses. Why did he do them? We've been studying Exodus on Wednesday nights. Why did Moses, why was he given power to liberate Israel from Egypt through these mighty signs? In Revelation 11, now we, through the Spirit, have power to deliver people from even deeper bondage to sin and death and condemnation. This is language to describe that glory which Jesus would consider greater than that of Moses. The time span these two witnesses prophesy is symbolized in a way that equates it with the whole span of the dragon's violent but ultimately unsuccessful attempts to Eliminate the church entirely. And again, this time span, that of the dragon's aggression, is described in three ways. As 42 months in 11.2 and 13.5, as 1260 days in 11.3 and 12.6, and as a time, times, and half a time in 12.14. That phrase again coming specifically from Daniel 7.25. All three designations describe the same length of time in the ancient world. Keep that in mind. Three, um, a month was 30 days. 42 times 30 is 1260. A year was 360 days. Three and a half times 360 equals 1260. So these statements were temporal markers, or the statements these temporal markers are in 
are giving us complementary, complementary perspectives on the same era of history as the order of these time designations imply. In the first and last eras, the time signature is 42 months, 11-2 and 13-5. In both of those texts, the focus is on the church's enemies and their aggression against the church. This same era lasts 1,260 days, that era of aggression against the church, Last 1260 days in 11.3 and 12.6, where the focus is on the church's witness and protection by God. The one text that gives us the timestamp from Daniel 7 of a time, times, and half a time is given as commentary on the protection of the woman in chapter 12, verse 6. So, the texts where these time markers appear characterize the era they're symbolizing in two ways. The enemies of God assault the church for 42 months. As the holy city is trampled by the Gentiles in 11, 1 and 2. We just read that last week. And as the beast wields his authority and blasphemy against God and warfare against the saints in 13, 5 through 7. The church is protected by God during this for 1260 days as the two witnesses prophesy and their opponents can't harm them in 11, 3. And as the mother of the Messiah is nourished in the wilderness and the dragon cannot destroy her in 12.6 and 12.14 through 17. The common thread running through these descriptions is the opposition to the church and God's preservation of the church in her witnessing identity and task. They are assaulted by the Gentiles, the beast, the great city. And its international co-conspirators, if you will, and, of course, by the dragon himself. But they are also preserved by God, who will not allow his holy place to be defiled, or his witnesses to be silenced, or his new Israel to be swept away by the dragon's lies in chapter 12, verses 15 and 16. This Again, this mixed situation, beloved, of deadly danger and divine defense sounds very much like John's day and our day. As long as the prophetic mission of his witnesses remains incomplete, as long as there are more people unreached, the church cannot be destroyed. And this is our era. This is what we're living in as the gospel advances across the world. As we preach the gospel, God sends judgments of fire and drought. We see this all over the world. These were symbolized in the first and second cycles of seals and trumpets as partial plagues. They were a foreshadowing within history of the lake of fire that will consume all rebels against God. But once the witness's mission is completed, something very strange happens. It will look like the beast gets the upper hand since he's conquered and killed those who held to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now the great city personified as Babylon the harlot in Revelation 17 and 18, is where their corpses lie, exposed in the streets. But here, the great city is called Sodom, spiritually in symbolism, since Sodom was at one time the center of human wickedness and the object of God's wrath in Matthew 11, 23 and 24, describing Genesis. And Egypt, it's called. Sodom and Egypt, the slave master of Israel. And the recipient of the ten plagues. And here the great city is also identified as the place of Jesus' crucifixion in verse 8. Where did that happen? Earthly 
Jerusalem. Right? What is earthly Jerusalem now that Christ has ascended? How does the Bible describe it? Meaning that in the final days here, in, we're finding earthly Jerusalem is the center of human wickedness and the object of God's wrath. The earthly Jerusalem and the anti-Jesus religion it promotes in Judaism have no claim anymore. No claim to the honored title, the holy city. This doesn't mean that the phrase great city only symbolizes earthly Jerusalem and Judaism, but all who dwell on the earth and give allegiance to the beast and then even rejoice in his temporary victory over the witnessing church. Verse 8 heavily implies, beloved, that a period of oppression is coming at some point against the church that is so intense, so intense, it will seem by all appearances that the church really has been obliterated from the planet. In verses 8 through, 20, those, uh, 8 through 10, those who dwell on the earth, remember what that term means in Revelation, earth dwellers as opposed to the city of God dwellers. In verses 8 through 10, those who dwell on the earth and rejected the call of the two witnesses to repentance will celebrate the demise of the church and its testimony to the truth. You can feel this brewing even here. The church is increasingly hated and maligned and a nuisance to the world. But, in contrast to the prolonged period of three and a half years during which the church is allowed to give its faithful testimony to Jesus, the apparent triumph of the beast, how is it described? How long will it last? Three and a half days. God will intervene to raise his witnesses from the dead as a breath of life from God entered them and they stood upon their feet. That language we have read literally in the Bible before. The language is exactly that of that mighty resurrected army of dry bones that Ezekiel saw back in Ezekiel 37.10. That is where the wording in verse 11 comes from. And as those who oppressed and murdered them look on in terror in verse 12, the witnesses are summoned by God to enter heaven and so imitate their Lord's resurrection and ascension after the cross in the clouds. Acts 1.9, Daniel 7.13, Matthew 26. 64, Revelation 12, 5. And then we read in verse 13 that accompanying, accompanying, can't talk tonight, this resurrection that vindicates the church, that has maintained its faithful witness, even to death, which is all Revelation in those seven letters is trying to get the church to do, there is a great earthquake. Again, this is that first tremor of the cosmic shaking that will remove the heavens and the earth in Revelation 20, verse 11, and 21, verse 1. It's the great quake we read of earlier in the vision of the sixth seal in 6, 12 through 17. And we'll see again when the seventh bowl is poured out in 16, 17 through 21. Shattering the great city, Babylon, into three pieces. Causing the cities of the Gentiles, those who no longer belong or do not belong to God, to fall. Removing islands and mountains. The difference between this earthquake and the one that comes later in the seventh bowl judgment is once again the limitation of the damage inflicted here. Only one-tenth of the great city is destroyed by this earthquake and only 7,000 people were killed. So if this is 
it. Right? If this is the global judgment, why are there only one-tenth destroyed and 7,000 killed? So that lets us know, okay, so we're still in, in history, we're still in the interlude of the sixth trumpet, the second woe. That's where we are. The final trumpet woe, which brings the destruction of the whole order, is still yet to come in verse 14. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. When the church is destroyed here. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. In the writing of the Old Testament prophets, one-tenth was symbolic of the faithful remnant spared from God's covenant curses on Israel. In Amos 5.3, Isaiah 6.13, that same connotation is attached to the second number given here, 7,000. It was 7,000 in Israel in the days of Elijah that had not bowed the knee to Baal, right? In 1 Kings 19, 14 through 18. But in John's vision, the numbers are reversed, aren't they? In who they describe. It was 7,000 faithful that didn't bow the knee to Baal. It was one-tenth preserved from God's curses on Israel. Here, in John's vision, one-tenth of the city and 7,000 people in it are destroyed, They're victims of God's wrath as the first to fall under God's judgment here. The enemies of God who survived this earthquake and have seen the witness church's resurrection in verse 11 and her ascension in verse 12 are terrified, the text says, and give glory to the God of heaven. Not in meaningful, willing worship and adoration. This is terror. This is worship from fear. It's awe. The Apostle Paul tells us that Christ must reign until all his enemies are put under his feet in 1 Corinthians 15, 25-26. That's a very important passage for understanding the order of things at the end. And that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Right? In context there, the abolition of death, the last enemy occurs at the second coming of Christ when those who belong to him enter into the bodily resurrection life that Jesus himself entered as the first fruits, remember, of a new creation. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 and 24. John's visions now in Revelation seem to portray the general resurrection, the last judgment, and the abolition of death that Paul spoke of as the final events that bring an end to the first things and make the way for the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, to Revelation 21, 5. And so, we've already looked at verses 15 through 18, but the sound of the seventh and final trumpet that comes next in that text draws out praise from heaven after these things happen, because the time for the outpouring of God's wrath against His enemies, the judgment of the dead, and the rewarding of His faithful servants has finally come. Because these points of biblical revelation about the end of history are fixed... The resurrection of these witnesses, the church, portrays the bodily resurrection of all who by faith belong to Christ's true church at his return, which is accompanied by a great earthquake of judgment that will elicit fearful praise even from God's enemies, reminding us of what Philippians 2, 9 through 11 told us, that every knee will bow and every tongue confess in much the same way that this genre of visions can compress eons of history, which is what Revelation often does, 
into symbolic images that pass very quickly. Revelation 12, 1 through 5, span all redemptive history from Genesis 3 to Acts 1. So in the same way this genre of scripture can do that, compress eons into symbolic images that pass very quickly, a split second in time may be expanded in a visionary description and simultaneous climactic events that happen altogether are given as successive so that you and I can see the different facets, the camera angles of the victory of Jesus. And I know most of the messages through Revelation give so much detail and they're very dense. And so maybe it's, it's kind of hard sometimes to follow. And I'm trying to talk a little more quickly so that we don't, we aren't here all night. If you are interested in studying these things deeper and trying to go back over them, I am more than willing to put these sermons. You know, I write a manuscript. I can put them, I can modify them a little bit and put them in a little book form. And you could take those notes and study them if that would help at all. So don't get frustrated. Think of the sermon as like a, like a, you know, buckshot, just shotgun and then going back through it, you know, having a little sniper and being able to concentrate a little better. But Revelation is meant to do that too. It's, it's, it's meant to overwhelm in some sense. That, that gets us primed to study it, right? All these visions tonight between the sixth and seventh trumpet set the scene now. This is where we are in Revelation. The scene has been set for the central drama of the book of Revelation, which portrays, as we head into chapter 12, the war of the ages, portrays that as the conflict between the heavenly woman, her child, and the living God on one side, and the harlot, the beast, and the dragon on the other. What has happened so far? The scroll containing God's plan for history and the victory of his witness church through suffering has been opened by the Lamb and given to the prophet John to be prophesied for their sakes, for our sake, for the comfort and warning of the church of Jesus Christ in the world in every age since it's existed. Beloved, despite the raging of our enemies, we are safe. We are secure. No one can snatch us from his hand spiritually in the presence of our holy champion. And even though we are clearly vulnerable here, to the violent aggression of those who hate our testimony to Jesus and want to silence our call to repentance. Our spiritual security as this great sealed or here measured sanctuary is fixed in God's hand. And the last word concerning our preservation and vulnerability in this time between the Lamb's first and second comings is the voice of the seventh trumpet that announces the end of history here in verses 15 through 18. We need to see this joyful consummation at the end in light of the age-long conflict that has come before it, that has led up to it, as well as the archenemy of God who provoked it. <clears throat> so in the next cycle of judgments, in the seven bowls, John will return to the dawn of time. He'll get to the deepest layer of this war to finally unmask the enemy who lurks behind all of it, and it turns out is operating through the church's enemies, the great dragon, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, in chapter 12, verse 9. Beloved, we are a twofold witness in the world until the return of Jesus by declaring God's truth 
and suffering for his sake. That's the image. The two witnesses are a picture of the church as declaring and proclaiming and as suffering. We have been sent into this world to testify to the truth, this truth, God's truth. You are his witnesses. You and I. The church of Jesus Christ exists in the world for no other reason but to proclaim his gospel. Look at the book of Revelation. Feel its weight and height and depth as it speaks about the story behind and holding up and driving and controlling all the other stories. And let us ask ourselves, Moundsville Baptist Church, my family, do we recognize this is who we are? This gospel to proclaim is why God lets this church exist. And if we don't do this, we will have no right, no lampstand in the Ohio Valley for God's sake. Right? We could be here. We can call ourselves a church. We can continue to pay the bills. Right? But are we this? Are we witnesses? Again, nobody's trying to get killed here. Nobody's trying, I need to do things so that I will suffer. No, no, no. Proclaim the gospel and you will. What God is telling you is that in this period where it looks like the enemy is winning and evil is everywhere, you are safe. You are secure. You are measured. Your prayers can shape the world. That's what God is telling you. We're free, beloved. You and I are free to die with no fear. We need nothing from this world. It can't give us anything, anything. So tonight, fix your eyes on his salvation. Let us go deeper into our recognition of just what it was exactly that Jesus did for us. By dying on the cross and rising from the dead for us. Why did he buy us such a complete and full and free salvation? So that we could be witnesses that would not be doomed by death. God wants to save people. God loves the world. And so he secures the salvation of his people so that they're safe When they tell him that message because they don't want it. Jesus was killed. We like to make it like he was killed for the truth. Yes, but what is the truth? The truth is Christ crucified. Why would they want to kill us for that? Because they do. They hated him. They'll hate us. That doesn't determine our attitude towards the world, beloved. We need the attitude of Jesus Toward the world. They don't know they're dying. They don't know they're lost. They're lost. Right? They're in the dark. They have Satan blinding them to seeing the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ revealed in the gospel. They have, they were born dead like we were in trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, doing whatever they want to do. That's who God says they are. We aren't here to be shocked at the fact that they're like that. We aren't here to end sin. God will end sin. Right? 
We are here to tell sinners where salvation is. And we are here to remind them, listen, God is being patient now because He desires your salvation. Right? That, that's, that's who He is. It's there as we go to the cross and the resurrection and sit at the feet of Jesus. It's there at the point of our deepest need where God met that deepest need, where there was, where you and I received God's greatest provision. It's there that we were meant to and will hear and see the truth that sets us free in such a way that we won't be able to stay silent. You don't have to be a professional. You have to be a recipient. Most of you are more poised to be witnesses in the world than I am. That doesn't get me off the hook. It's not like I am not called to the Great Commission or to be a witness. No, 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 that's not what I mean. What I mean is, where I work is in the church, mainly. Right? There, There aren't a ton of, you know unsafe people walking through here on a daily basis to do things. Right? I don't work. June is saved. Jacob is saved. Patsy and Miranda are saved. And Sam are saved. Bob Annette is saved. Right? Dave Durig is saved. When these brothers and sisters, when I'm around them, right, I'm, I'm not trying to get them saved. Most of you, or well, I guess maybe... Are most of you retired? Is that right? If you're retired, raise your hand. Okay, so let me change everything I just said. (laughs) You have time. Right? You have time. And and listen, I'm I'm not putting a weight on your shoulders. I'm not trying to get you to do this by threatening you with the destiny of the world. It is not up to you to save people. And it's not like if tomorrow you wake up and you're too tired to go out that God is disappointed in you. No, 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 no. Don't go there. Go, go to the cross. Right? God would, in a sense, redeem the life that you live for His purposes. Right? So, whatever role you play, wherever you are, in the witnessing ministry of the church, live there. You, you, you don't have to reach new heights. Just remember this is who you are. And the best way to remember that is to go to the cross and remember who Jesus is for you. And as He fills you with His truth, as the Spirit reveals Him to you, I, I, I won't have to beg you to proclaim. You'll do it. You'll do it, and so will I. But look at the life God has given you. Right? If you have time, if, if you have money, those things belong to Christ. That's as far as I would go with it, right? And for those of you, of course, that do still work or have jobs, even if you work around all believers, that everybody is in need of hearing Christ, of being comforted by Him. But, but this is who we are in the world. We aren't writing our own story. The pen is not in our hand. We are pens in God's hand, right? Just keep that in mind, that our lives are not our own. 
that we were bought with a price. Yes, that means God owns us. It also means God has saved us and forgiven us and given us His Son's righteousness and called us His own. It also means that. That's when really we become the church in a sense. I'm not saying we aren't a church here. I'm saying things come alive when we are a witnessing church. That is where we find ourselves in this book and it starts to make sense, right? So look to Christ. Look to Christ.